just wanted to introduce our uh, our preacher this morning. We have Jeff Guinan with us from Cornerstone Church in Calera. They're a sister church of ours. So, Jeff, I'm going to pray over you and over the service and pull pictures. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, God, as we come before Your Word this morning, Lord, would You... Um, Lord, would you make us into Christ's image by showing us the glory of the gospel this morning. Uh, Lord, it's not about any words that man has. Lord, we need to hear from you this morning. So, Lord, I ask that you would uh, be with Jeff as he brings the message. Uh, God, that your voice would be clearly heard through his preaching this morning. Lord, we give this time to you and we entrust you with it. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeff. Good morning. It's a, a privilege to be with you this morning. Um, I found out when I came in here that uh, Kevin did not communicate that we were doing a pulpit swap, which is uh, good because I forgot to communicate that to my church as well. Um, so surprise. Uh, but we've been planning to do this for a while. Kevin and I are, are good friends, and I really respect him. You guys have a, a great, wonderful, and faithful pastor, um, and we've been... Wanting to uh, swap pulpits for a while, we've been trying to get our, our preaching schedule in sync, and it never worked out until we both were realizing that we were preaching through the five solas uh, here in October, and so this was a good time to do that. And it's a, it's always good to hear from somebody else, and uh, as preachers, it's good to have the opportunity to speak to a new group of people, because sometimes we feel like our own church uh, kind of hears us say the same thing over and over again, and I hope that I'm really just telling you the same thing Kevin tells you every week, uh, but you get to hear it from my voice instead of his. Uh, But the gospel is the gospel, and uh, I hope that it's the same message that you're hearing every week. I do want to encourage you before we begin here, uh, you guys are actually very instrumental in the formation of our church in Calera. We started four years ago uh, as of September, and when we were, before we got started, Our family went around to different PCA churches in the area trying to get a feel for different styles of worship. And so we visited Briarwood and Oak Mountain and and, uh, several other of the large PCA churches in the Birmingham area. And we visited uh, with you guys as well. Um, I don't know if anybody remembers. I'm fairly shy, so I probably didn't say anything to anybody. We just kind of sat in the back and and, uh, observed. But um, of all the churches we were in... It was here, it was Grace Fellowship. We said, you know what, this is, this is the culture that we want. Um, this is the, the type of feel in the worship service and, and the rhythm of worship that we want to do. And so even without you guys knowing it, uh, you played a large role in, in who we are as a church. And then uh, I also just want to encourage you, this is an absolutely beautiful sanctuary. I know you guys worked hard. Uh, it was, I'm sure, a lot of money. Uh, to renovate this. This is just amazing, and you guys did a wonderful job. Uh, we meet in a school cafeteria, uh, which is a little bit different than, than here. Um, we don't have the large arch ceiling. We just have a drop ceiling. And instead of the, uh, the stained glass in the back, we have a big painting of an eagle. Um, so the Lord tells us not to envy, and I'm just going to admit to you this whole time, I'm going to be repenting inwardly of my sanctuary envy. Uh, if, if out of Christian charity you guys can just donate your building to us, I would really appreciate it. That would be awesome. So thank you if you'll consider that. Um, I do want to come to you this morning, and uh, as, as I'm sure Kevin has been telling you every week, we're, we're focusing on the five solas, the five cries of the Reformation. And what we're going to look at this morning is sola gratia, by grace alone. And I want to look at this at the word, uh, through the Word of God in Luke chapter 18. 
If you will please turn there, uh, look at verses 9 through 14. So it's Luke 18, 9 through 14. And this is the, uh, a parable that many of you are probably familiar with, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I remind my church every week that as we approach this, we are not approaching the words of a mere man. We are reading the word of God. That means it is inspired by God. Uh, it is ordained by him to be the means through which he works in our life. And so when we read it, we read it with a reverence, but we also read it with an expectation. And that expectation is that God is going to work through his spirit and through his word to actually change us this morning. Now, I don't know what your normal pattern here is, but the pattern in scripture is when the word of God is read publicly together, the people stand. So if you will please stand as we read God's word together from Luke 18, uh, starting in verse 9. He, that is Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to understand. Lord God, you are holy and you are righteous and you are just in all of your ways. And you have given us this word as a way of declaring what is right and what is good and what is lovely and beautiful. And so, Lord, we pray that you would break through the hardness of our heart. Help us to understand. Uh, Help our minds to be free from distraction and worldly concern. And let us see the beauty and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ as he is displayed before us here in Scripture. Help us to see our great need of a Savior and the great provision that you've given us by grace in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've been preaching through the Gospel of Luke this year at Cornerstone. And let me just put this in a little bit of context. Jesus has been talking about the central question uh, in the last couple chapters in the book of Luke leading up to this episode that we find in Luke 18. And that central question is this. How can a person be made right with God? How can a person get into the kingdom of God? How can a person be declared righteous? Okay, And so in verse 9, we get a contextual clue. It says that he told this parable to some who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous. Now, righteousness is a good church word. This is a word that we don't normally talk about a lot in normal life. We talk about it only within the context of the church. And so I find it helpful to define righteousness. Okay, your righteousness, simply put, is your record of right and wrong. It's what determines if you meet a standard for acceptance. And so there's other ways in life that we have the same idea, even if we don't use the term righteousness. You can think of your righteousness like your resume. If you want to get a job, you're going to submit your resume. And your resume is a list of all your experience, your accomplishments. And if that experience and accomplishments measures a certain standard, well, you might get the job. But if it doesn't, well, you're not going to get the job. Or 
Think about it in terms of sports. If somebody retires and they were a good athlete, they're going to be considered for the Hall of Fame. Your righteousness is that record, that, that standard, right? Did they do enough good things? Did they break enough records? Did they win enough championships? Do they meet the standard for acceptance into the Hall of Fame or did they not? And so as we consider our coming into the kingdom of God, our righteousness is that record that we have. Have we met the standard for admission or acceptance into the kingdom of God? Now, Jesus is talking to people who believed that their record was pretty good. That they in themselves had done enough good things, had met a high enough standard that they were good to go with God. That they were accepted into the kingdom of God. Now, this idea of righteousness or acceptance is something that, even if we don't think about it in these terms, we all think about. In every age, every single person is trying to answer this question within themselves. Am I righteous enough to be accepted by God? And in every age, every person has a temptation to look at themselves as the source for their righteousness. Now, 500 years ago, the medieval Catholic Church taught a doctrine of what's called infused righteousness. That is, the gospel according to the medieval Catholic Church was, if you were baptized in the church, your sins were wiped away. And if you did enough good things, then you would, be, you would measure up. You would have the righteousness that is required for acceptance into heaven. And the good news is that if you weren't righteous enough, then you can do some certain acts to add extra righteousness to your account. You can go to different uh, places and, and do some different acts. You can worship different uh, figurines, some different relics, and that would add to your righteousness. Or there were some people that they called saints who were so righteous that they actually had extra righteousness, leftover righteousness, right? My wife, when she goes... To Chewy, she always has a leftover taco, and I get to eat that. And that's my benefiting from uh, her good menu decisions, right? And so in the medieval Catholic Church, there were some people who made really good decisions in their life. They had leftover righteousness. And, and for just a few hundred dollars or thousand dollars, whatever it may be, you can buy some of that leftover righteousness and add it to your account. And the good news is if you weren't rich enough to buy some of that leftover righteousness, well... You can go to purgatory and for a couple hundred thousand years, then you can pay off the rest of your debts to God and finally be welcomed into his presence. But that was no good news at all, is it? They were saying at the end of the day, it was your righteousness that earned you acceptance into God's presence. And we all have that temptation to think that it is our righteousness that earns us favor with God. Now, most of us in this culture, here in the, 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 this Bible Belt area, we're sophisticated enough and we're biblical enough to know that this whole medieval system of relics and indulgences and purgatory, that's all a bunch of bunk. But what do we do? We, in the Bible Belt, believe in something similar, what I call Bible Belt legalism. And it's very similar to that medieval Catholic church. Bible Belt legalism is the way that you get accepted before God is to simply be a good person, go to church every now and then, uh, have some general ideas about God, have some nice, warm, fuzzy feelings about Jesus, maybe even pray to him when things get really tough. But most importantly, pretend like you have it all together. 
do not let anyone know how much of a sinner you are. And if you can do that, then you are a righteous person. That's the, the gospel of Bible Belt legalism. And what Christ is teaching us here in this parable is that none of that will work. There is only one way that we can be right with God, and that is by forsaking all of our own righteousness and trusting in His grace alone to save us. And He shows us this by giving us two examples. The first is the negative example of the Pharisee, and the second is the positive example of the tax collector. So let's look at this Pharisee. We find him in verse 10 through 12. And we see that this Pharisee is a very moral man. Now, to really appreciate what Jesus is saying, we need to forget everything that we know about Pharisees, okay? So we're 2,000 years removed from Jesus uh, teaching this parable. And we know, if we've grown up in church and we know anything about the Bible, we know that the Pharisees are jerks. We know that the Pharisees are the bad guys. They're, they're, the, they're the ones who are self-righteous, uh, you know, always, always believing and doing the wrong thing. But we need to put ourselves in the context of the audience that Jesus is speaking to. For them, for the ancient Israelite, the Pharisee is not a self-righteous jerk. The Pharisee is the hero. The Pharisee was looked up to by everyone in the community. The Pharisees were seen as the very best of the best, the most moral, the most righteous, the most theologically accurate people in the land, the type of people that you want your sons to grow up and be, the type of people that you want your daughters to grow up and marry. The Pharisees in this culture were seen as the good guys. And Jesus is turning us all up on its head. This Pharisee was the best of the best of the best. He was a very moral person. Okay, He's a very good guy. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And he gives examples of his morality. He is not an extortioner, unjust, adulterer, or like that tax collector. If we turn that around, here's what he's saying. He is a very good citizen. This Pharisee is an honest businessman. He is not an extortioner. The Greek word there literally means plunderer. That is, he does not steal from people. He doesn't cheat people. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, practice unjust business ethics. Okay, He does everything honestly. He is upright. He is a good citizen. He is not unjust. That is, he obeys the law of the land. He has no problem. The police are never knocking on his door. He's not a troublemaker. He obeys all the laws. If there's, a, if there's a speed limit for riding your donkey through Jerusalem, he obeyed it. Right? If that speed limit is two miles an hour, he went one mile an hour just to be on the safe side. He obeyed the law. And he says he's not an adulterer. That means he is a faithful husband. He didn't cheat on his wife. He wasn't looking at, uh, at bad things. He wasn't lusting in his heart over other women. He was faithful to his wife. And, and that's a good thing, right? Who does not want a husband to be faithful to their wife? He's a good man. And most importantly, he says, thank God that I am not like that tax collector. Now, you probably know a little bit about the reputation of tax collectors in the Bible. They kind of still have that same reputation today. I mean, we still don't like tax collectors, right? But in this day, it was even worse. A tax collector was somebody who was working for the pagan occupying force. All right? If you're an Israelite, you're a proud person. You are God's chosen people. And here this pagan Roman nation had come in and they had conquered your land. And they were usurping your laws. And they put people in place to take your money to pay for their pagan rituals. And to pay for their pagan occupying army. 
And this tax collector is somebody who was an Israelite. He was from the community. He had paid a certain amount of money in order to get the privilege of having this job. He was one of your own who had sold you out in order to go work for that pagan government. And what he would do is if the government said you owe us uh, one coin, he would say you owe me two. One goes to the government, one goes to me. So he was stealing from people. In fact, the tax collectors were seen as so deceitful, so dishonest, so repugnant, so sinful, that they weren't even allowed to tithe at the temple. Because their income was seen as dishonest gain. Now, how bad of a sinner do you have to be that the church won't even take your money? Right? That's what these tax collectors... Now, I don't know most of y'all, but I can tell you, you're probably not that bad of a sinner that the church isn't going to take your money. But the tax collectors, these were the worst of the worst. They were cheating off of others. They were robbing people. They, were, they had betrayed their own people. And the Pharisees say, thank you, God, that I am not like him. At least I'm not a cheat. I'm not a scoundrel. I'm not a scumbag. I'm a patriot. I'm loyal. I'm a good person. We see also that he's a very religious man. Where is he at? He's at the, the temple. He went to the temple to pray. All right? If we were going to put this in our common day vernacular, it would be he was at church. And what is he doing here? He's praying. So he's a, he's a church-going man. He's a praying man. Look in verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of y'all have fasted at all? Ever? And if you have, maybe it was once in your life. Or maybe you're really, really into being religious, and that's good, and, and you fast once a year. This guy fasts twice a week. And then he says, he gives a tithe of all that he gets. The law of God is exacting as it is. doesn't even require a tithe of everything. There's, there's certain... Uh, Rules for tithing, it doesn't require a tithe of everything. And so what we see is that this guy is going above and beyond the letter of the law. He is doing everything he thinks that the law requires and more. So he's a very good citizen. He's a moral, upright man. He is a very religious man. And he's a very theological thinker. He says, God, I thank you that I am this way. I Thank you that I am not like other men. You see what he's doing? He's saying, my goodness is not something in my own. This isn't something that I came up with. This goodness that I have is a gift from God. You know what he is? He's a good Calvinist. He knows that his righteousness is a gift from God. He knows that his righteousness is not something that he could obtain by his own ability. This man would be an elder at almost any church. This man is a good neighbor. He's the type of guy that you want to have as your neighbor. Maybe you've had really bad neighbors before, right? It makes life tough. He's the kind of guy you want to be your neighbor. He's the kind of guy you want your son to grow up to be. He's the kind of guy you want your daughter to marry. He is a good man. A moral, upright citizen. He is, like most of the people around us here in the Bible Belt, a good conservative person, a good neighbor. He practices good hospitality. So what's the problem? What's the issue? The problem is that he was trusting in his righteousness. The problem is that his trust was ultimately in himself, his own goodness. And this 
is where the facade of all of his moral uprightness comes crashing down. As devoted as he seemed to be to following God's law, and as much as he may have been trying to give God the glory for his righteousness, it was still his righteousness that he was trusting in. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem is that as good as he was, and he was good, and in fact, I would dare say, he is a better person than any of us. But as good as he is, his righteousness is not enough. As much as he would have tried, he could never obtain 100% satisfaction of the law, which is the righteousness that God requires. And that's the very point of the law. Think about Moses, right? Moses, if we're, if we're really honest with ourselves, it's kind of a, a tough story. For 40 years... He leads God's people through the wilderness. And they're whining, they're complaining, they're begrudging. For 40 years he leads these people. He teaches them, he gives them the law. Over and over and over again, every day he's contending with them to trust God. And they continue to be unthankful. And then one day, just one day, one moment of that day, he loses it. And he gets angry. And instead of speaking to the rock, he hits the rock. And for that one moment of anger that every single one of us can uh, understand, he's not allowed to enter into the promised land. And we ask, why? Why would God not allow him to go into the promised land after everything that he did? Because that's the very point of the law. Even one minor transgression keeps you out. The problem for the Pharisee is not that he wasn't a good guy. He was a good guy. The problem is he was not righteous the way that God is righteous. He was comparing himself to the wrong standard. What he was doing is he was comparing himself to the tax collector and he was saying, well, surely I'm better than that guy. But he was comparing himself to the wrong standard. 2 Corinthians 10.12 says, Those who compare themselves by themselves or measure themselves among themselves are not wise. The Bible says it is not wise to compare yourself to others or to compare yourself amongst others. We compare ourselves to God. He's the standard. I'll put it this way. Every now and then I have the opportunity to play football with kids. You know, Sometimes you know, a bunch of little five-year-olds, six-year-olds, whatever they may be. And compared to those five and six-year-olds, guess what? I am really good at football. <laughs> I am awesome. I can throw farther. I can throw harder. I can run them over. They cannot tackle me. Those little punks, I stiff-arm them, and I go my way. All right? Compared to those five and six-year-olds, I am really good. But imagine if I were to go try to walk on at Alabama. Compared to those guys, I'd be laughed off the field. Right? I'm not good enough to go play with Alabama. Probably make it on at Auburn, but not Alabama. The Pharisee's problem is that he was comparing himself to the wrong standard. He looked to the tax collector and he said, Look how much better I am than him, and therefore I am righteous. He compares, as we all do when we compare ourselves to others, the best in himself against the worst 
in what he sees in somebody else. And that's exactly what always happens if we are not living by grace. If we think that it's our righteousness that makes us right with God, then what we will do continually every day throughout our life is to compare ourselves with others. And what happens is we either get jealous of the good that we see in others and therefore hate them, out of our jealousy, or we treat that person with disdain and therefore hate them because we think that we are better than them. But grace destroys comparison. When we live by grace alone, what we are saying is, I need just as much grace as anyone else. I need just as much grace as the ISIS terrorist. I need just as much grace as whoever it is that's on the other side of the cultural uh, debate than I am. Whoever you think it is that's your exact cultural opposite, if you're a a, a nice, good, conservative, uh, Bible-believing person, and you look at somebody out there and you see this, this urban, progressive homosexual, grace says, I need just as much grace as them. I am no better. I am no better off. I need a righteousness that is not my own. And that's what happens when we... Compare ourselves not to other people, but when we compare ourselves to God, what we ought to immediately realize is that our own righteousness is inadequate. This is why Romans 3 says there are none righteous, no, not one. It's a universal. It's not there are very few righteous. No, it's there are none righteous. You are not righteous in yourself. We all have great need to be forgiven. And we all have a great need for a righteousness that is not our own. Jesus lays us all flat when he says, You must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Yeah, maybe you're a good person. This Pharisee was a really, really good person. But he wasn't perfect the way that God is perfect. And that levels us all. It says that no matter how good you are, we have never obeyed God's law perfectly. And therefore we need grace, and we need grace alone. You see, not only is there an ever-present temptation to trust in our own righteousness, but there's also a temptation to trust in what I'm going to call grace plus. Grace plus. What does that mean? This can work in a couple different ways. It could work like this, okay? By God's grace, He has made salvation possible. And if it were not for God's grace, then we would have no hope of salvation. Uh, But God's grace has made salvation possible, but it's a grace plus. And that means that God's grace has made me savable, but I must do something in order to make that salvation true for me. So it works like this. Imagine that you're stuck at the bottom of a well 100 feet down on the ground. And by God's grace... He comes and He lifts you up. And He puts you right on the edge of the well. And He even puts one arm and one leg over the well. And all you have to do to be saved is throw that other leg over and voila, you are saved. He does 99% of the work. All you have to do is that one last thing. That's grace plus. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You can't put your leg over the wall. Even if that's all you have to do, you can't do it. If Jesus only saves you 99% of the way, then we still remain 100% condemned. It's not grace plus. Grace plus could also work like this. Grace saves us. right? God in His grace makes us safe. God in His grace even throws us over the wall. He does everything for our salvation. But once I am saved, 
then I have to do something to keep God happy with me. Now, this is the way just about every area of life works, right? We are only as good as the last thing we did. If you're in sales, you're only as good as your last sale, right? If, if you're in sports, you're only as good as your last win. If you're in school, kids, you're only as good as your last grades, right? And so we're tempted to think that that's the way our salvation works. That, yes, God has saved us, but his happiness with us, his acceptance with us, is really contingent upon our last act of obedience. Our, our salvation is only as good as our last quiet time. Or our standing before God is only as good as our last time of prayer. Or our last good deed. It's grace plus. God has saved you, but you have to do something to keep him happy with you. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says that we are saved by grace alone, not grace plus. And this means that when we have faith in Christ, God always thinks of us in the same way that he thinks of Jesus himself. And there is never any fluctuation. Our salvation, our standing before God, is as secure as the standing of Jesus Christ himself before the Father. And this is why salvation must be by grace alone. Because there is nothing that we can do to earn it. There is nothing we can do to keep it. And there is nothing that we can do to add to it. We all face these temptations every day to trust in our own righteousness. We look to our daily performance to determine, is God happy with me today? Now, I don't know about you, but I spent a whole lot of my life living in that fluctuation. Whether it was bad teaching in the church or whether I was just too dumb to understand it. I never got that part of the gospel that my standing before God was secure in Christ. I knew that Jesus died for me, but I didn't know that it was his righteousness that determines God's happiness with me. My first memory in life, my sister comes to me. I was five years old. My sister comes to me and she tells me, I'm going to go to hell if I don't believe in Jesus. Uh, I didn't want to go to hell. That sounded scary. So I went crying to my dad. And I said, Dad, I don't want to go to hell. And so he led me in the sinner's prayer. But I was so terrified of hell that I only got about halfway through the prayer because I was crying the whole time. And so literally for 15 years, I didn't know if the prayer worked because I didn't finish it. And so every Sunday... When the preacher, I grew up in a, in a fundamentalist Baptist church, when the preacher would say, if you want to go to heaven, pray this prayer with me, I would pray the prayer in my heart because I, I wanted to make sure that the word stuck, that it actually worked. And I always wondered, does God love me today? Is God happy with me? Is my salvation secure? Because I would remember my sin. I would remember that, that girl I looked at in the wrong way, and I would think... Well, surely if I'm struggling with that, then, then God, God's not happy with me right now. And for 20 years, I was wavering every day, wondering, is God happy with me today? Now, maybe some of you can relate to that, some of you can't, but I can tell you this. That's no way to live. That is an awful, awful load to bear but here's the gospel. Not only did Jesus die to take away your sin, but Jesus lived and his record of righteousness, his record of accomplishments is given to your account by faith. And that means that even if you're a believer in Christ, 
even in your worst moment of sin, in that exact moment, God looks upon you and smiles and says, you are my beloved. Why? Because that's what he says of Jesus. And united to him by faith, what he says of Jesus is now said of you. That's the grace that God offers. That's what it means to be saved by grace alone. It means that our standing before God is not based upon what we have done, our own righteousness, but based upon the righteousness of Christ that is given to us by grace. So we see this Pharisee. He's the best of the best, and he stands condemned. And so the question then is, how do any of us have hope? And we see this with the tax collector. Jesus is showing us here through the tax collector that salvation is by grace alone. And so look at verse 13. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector is recognizing that he is not righteous. And this recognition of his own sin is shown in several different ways, right? It's shown, first of all, in his location. It says that he's far off. Remember, they're at the temple. Okay? The temple is the place where the presence of God was. If you wanted to be in the presence of God in the Old Covenant era, which this is still in, then you had to go to the temple located in Jerusalem. And so he's standing far off, and the idea there is he's as far away from the presence of God as he possibly can be. He dare not step foot uh, one foot more closer into the presence of God than where he is, because he knows that he, a sinner, does not deserve to be in God's presence. And then we see his position. It says that he would not lift his eyes to heaven. He is filled with shame and guilt. He knows that he is far from God. He knows that he has no hope in himself, nothing good to offer. And so he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He doesn't say, be merciful to me, a sinner, or one of the sinners. It says, be merciful to me, the sinner. You get the idea there? The Pharisee, is looking around, he sees the tax collector, he says, I'm a really good guy, I'm especially better than that guy. And the tax collector, looking down, he is only aware of himself. He is only aware of his own sin. He is not aware of anyone else's. As far as he is concerned, he is the only sinner in the area. And that is the heart of true repentance. He's not comparing himself with anyone else. But he is recognizing the vileness of his own sin. And he declares himself, as far as he is concerned, the only and the worst sinner in the world. And he pleads for mercy. God, be merciful to me. Now, this is interesting. There are two Greek words that get translated as mercy in our New Testament. There's the normal word, which is just the general sense of mercy, which is if somebody's stuck in a ditch, you reach down and mercy is helping them out of the ditch. And that's 99% of the time the Bible uses mercy as that meaning. But there's another word, the Greek word is halosmos. And it's only used twice in the New Testament. And the only time it's translated mercy is here. The other time this Greek word is used is in 1 John 2.2. We read it earlier in the Assurance of Pardon. And it's translated propitiation. So mercy here is the same as the word propitiation. Now, I bet propitiation is not a word that you use a whole lot. So let me define it for you because it's a wonderful, wonderful term that we all need to know. Remember what First uh, John 2, 2 says. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins and for the whole world. So what does propitiation mean? What is this word mercy that the tax collector is saying? It means to divert justice, to divert wrath. The idea is if 
if this person is worthy of the wrath and condemnation of God, propitiation is saying that wrath and condemnation is being exerted or executed on someone or something else. Now, this idea of propitiation is actually seen in the Old Testament in Leviticus 16. There was one day a year in the Jewish calendar where the sins of the nation would be forgiven. They're called the Day of Atonement. And on this Day of Atonement, all the sins of the nation would be laid upon one goat who would be sent out into the wilderness. And the idea is that the sins are being removed from the people. And there was also a sacrificial goat and lamb, excuse me. And that blood would be taken into the inner room in the temple called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And over the Ark of the Covenant was the Shekinah glory of God. That's this big ball of light that was representing God's presence hovering over the Ark of the Covenant. And do you remember what's in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. And there's a covering over the Ark of the Covenant which is called the Mercy Seat. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament... Guess what word is used to describe the mercy seat? It's the word halosmos. It's the literally propitiation seat. And the whole idea there is that this blood of the lamb is sprinkled on the propitiation seat. And so that when God looks down, he does not see the law which we've broken, but he sees the blood of the sacrifice which covers that transgression. And so when the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, what he is saying is, God, propitiate me. God, take away the wrath that I deserve and put it somewhere else so that I can be forgiven, so that I can have acceptance. I know that I don't deserve it. But God, just like you've taken the sins of the people away for so many years, will you do it for me? That's his plea for mercy. Now we understand how this all works, this side of the cross. Jesus is our propitiation. He is the Lamb of God that was slain. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin put to Jesus, his righteousness given to us. That's the gospel message, by grace alone. Now as we look at this, we need to understand a couple things. First is that, We are both these guys. Every day, throughout the day, we fluctuate between being the Pharisee and the tax collector. We fluctuate between the extremes of both those approaches to God. We think that either sometimes we are good enough to be in God's presence, we've earned our salvation, or sometimes we go to the extreme of the tax collector's position, we think we are too bad to be in God's presence and we have no hope. But both of those are self-righteous approaches. Both of those think that our standing before God is dependent upon something in ourself. And Jesus is telling us to abandon that mentality. To admit that we have no hope of salvation except that by God's grace he has given us the righteousness of Christ by which we can be right with God. And when we trust that, then what is true of the tax collector here becomes true of us. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. He was justified. That means he was declared not only to have been innocent of ever breaking the law, but he is declared to have done everything that God has always demanded. When we are justified, it means that God says, 
You have perfectly obeyed my law. You have been perfect as I am perfect. And that's the declaration that we receive through grace alone. That Christ takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. And by that, we are accepted and unashamed before God. And so, I want you to know. Again, I don't know most of you. I don't know where you stand spiritually. Uh, You know, as far as I know, this may be your first time ever in church. So I want you to know that this can be true of you. Jesus is saying that all sin, all rebellion, all shame can be forgiven. Now in the Bible Belt, our big problem is not so much that we're big scandalous rebels. Our problem is that we trust in our own goodness. And Jesus is saying that's not going to work either. So turn to Christ. Trust in grace Alone, And when we do that, we are granted forgiveness. We are given acceptance and a righteousness that we can never find on our own. When Jesus talks about salvation by grace alone, what it means is that we don't have to keep pretending like we have it all together. We don't have to pretend like our life is great all the time. We can say, yeah, sometimes I really, really mess it up. Because our salvation, our standing before God, isn't based on our ability to not mess it up. It's by grace alone. So what's our response to this? In verse 9 it says that Jesus was saying this to some who trusted in their own righteousness. And that is another way of saying for any who trust in their own righteousness. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to examine our hearts. By the help of the Holy Spirit we need to ask, is there any way that I am trusting in myself? Is there any way that maybe I'm even trusting in grace plus Is there any way that I'm trusting that somehow it's what I do that determines my status with God? And if that's true, which I would dare say it probably is, Jesus is calling us to repent, not just of our sin, but repent of our own self-righteousness. The great theologian John Gerstner said that we must not only repent of our sin, but we must repent of our righteousness. We must trust that not only will our sins condemn us, but even our best efforts will condemn us. The Bible says that our best efforts, on our best day, what we offer God is nothing but filthy rags. And so, yes, we need to repent of our sin, but we need to also repent of any feelings of worth in the sight of God that is based on anything that we have done. Now, we may not be tempted to trust in the Roman Catholic medieval view of salvation, but we are tempted every day to trust in the gospel of Bible Belt legalism that says that we are justified by pretending like we have it all together. But the Bible offers a much better gospel. It says that our salvation is secured by Christ and that what is His becomes ours by grace alone. And here's the good news about that. That ought to be precious to us in our time of sin. Because when we sin, Satan points his finger at our failure and condemns us. And if we are trusting in our own goodness, then we know what happens, right? We we begin to lose heart. But what does the Bible say? Who will condemn God's elect? Romans 8, 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? It's because it's not our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness that determines our standing before God. Martin Luther says, this is my favorite quote of Luther's. He says, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. 
I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who has suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. And his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Let me simplify this very briefly. There is no other way of salvation. There is no other way to be right with God. There is no other hope to be reconciled with God except by trusting that God gives you as a gift of his grace the record of Jesus. And so do you believe that that is your only hope? If you are plus, uh, placing your trust in anything that has to do with you and your record and your ability to do your best, if you are trusting that you've been a pretty good person, the Bible says on the final day that will not do. But in His grace, God offers you the righteousness of Christ. And all you need to do is receive that righteousness by faith that is offered to you by grace. Stop trusting in yourself. Trust in Christ. And when you trust in Him, the judge of all the world says you are justified. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that that would be the cry and the trust of our heart. And uh, invite the music team to go ahead and come on up. Lord, we do ask that you would expose to us the idolatry of self-righteousness. There are so many things that we look at and we say, this is why I'm good, this is why I'm accepted, this is why Jesus loves me today. And Lord, we know that that is false. And so Lord, I pray that you would expose those false trusts to us. Help us to repent. Help us to see the righteousness of Christ as our only hope, as our our only glory. Let it be beautiful to us that we would rejoice. And it is the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.